This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Ever wish that certain things would go a lot faster? For us here at Brummy Mummies, it's the kids getting their shoes on and out the door so we're not late for school. Or do you wish that some things were a bit more reliable? Like actually being handed the school note to say they need a costume ahead of the day it's due? Well, we can't control the speed of our kids. Luckily for us Brummy Mummies, Talk Talk's Future Fibre is now here in Birmingham. And with speeds up to a whopping 900 megabits per second, it's fast enough to handle anything you throw at it. And it's great Talk Talk value too. Future Fibre might not speed up the school run. But when it comes to downloading our podcast or making sure your work calls don't cut out in the holidays because your son's playing video games or your daughter's streaming TV, ultra-fast and ultra-reliable broadband using the latest technology is just what you need. To find out more, search Talk Talk Future Fibre, subject to local availability. Today we talked to Birmingham MP Jess Phillips about motherhood and why family and friends are so important to her. She opens up about her childhood, being a young mum, having an abortion, the impact of losing her mother and what it's like to be a working mum in Westminster. Welcome back to Brummy Mummies. My name is Zoe Chamberlain. I'm a journalist, author and mum. I launched Brummy Mummies as a community for families to help people to connect both online and in person. My goal is to share with you stories from the most inspiring mums and dads to help you find out how they juggle family life and everything that comes with it. Jess's children are now 17 and 13 and as Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding, she splits her time between London and Birmingham, working tirelessly to support women and children. But remarkably, she finds time most days she's in Brum to meet up with her friends for coffee. So let's get straight into talking to Jess about how she does it. Hi Jess, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. That's okay, it's my pleasure. So tell me about your book, Mother. Uh, what inspired you to write it? Um, well, it, it's a brummy thing, really. The publisher is a thing called The Pound Project and it's a small Birmingham publisher and I actually grew up with the lad who, <laughs> he's not a lad anymore, he's a man, uh, the the man who runs it, um, John, um, he got in touch with me and um, he said that he he wanted to do a thing for Mother's Day and wanted me to write about, you know, anything I wanted to about sort of um, motherhood um, and my experiences of motherhood as a mom, as a daughter, uh, as a politician. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, the natural inspiration for writing about motherhood, even though I am a mom, um, is my own mother. So she and she is my inspiration in almost everything that I do, really. So uh, everything I write, whether it's directly about motherhood or not, my inspiration is always my mum. I know you're one of four children and your parents had foster children as well. I know your mum had a really impressive career and she took legal action against a uh, a drug company as well. Do you think all of that shaped who you are today? Yeah, without question, like my home when I was a kid 
um, was a place of welcome. Um, I mean, that's literally a term we use now for like churches and stuff that welcome refugees or welcome victims of domestic abuse. But I grew up in uh, a house that was full of different people. Um, constantly there was somebody living with us. My granddad lived with us. Um, my, uh, you know, we had various different people who had difficult lives living with us. We used to do sort of respite holidays and care for... And now, I mean, I didn't, I didn't realise how much this will have um, influenced me. But like, for example, a little girl whose dad had killed her mum. Um, and I didn't think about it at the time. I was like five years old. Like, you know, you didn't think about it. Um, but yeah, there was lots of um, exposure to people in need um, and fighting back against the status quo was what my parents did. Not just my mum took this amount, and it was before I was born really, most of that, the amazing action of a sort of woman in her early 20s with two kids taking on the biggest drug company in the in the country and winning. But like everything, like our house was always full of people sort of plotting to fight back against things, whether it was nuclear disarmament, the lack of childcare in the country, like even things like, you know, in the cost of living crisis now, my parents used to like be part of like food co-ops so that people could have cheaper access to food and things. So when you grow up in an environment that is people living their values, it's not a surprise that I ended up where I am now. Yeah, amazing, amazing place to grow up. So I know in the book you talk about the loss of your mom, and 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 that was at quite a young age, really. How has that changed you? Yeah, my mum died when I was twenty nine. I feel very fortunate that um, both of my children had been born by that point. So uh, I feel very very sad for my brothers, one of whom her, his twin sons had just been born just when she died. They were four months old. And my other brother, who's had two children since she died. So I feel very, very grateful that my children knew her and um, remember her, even though some of that is forced memory from talking. Um, but it changed my life uh, dramatically without... You're not conscious of it happening at the time. Obviously, it changes your day-to-day -day life. My mum was the person I spoke to every day on the phone about something and saw, you know, every couple of days. It changes your day-to-day -day life. But it definitely made me throw myself into work um, and activism. Not even, not again, not consciously, because that's what she was like. It was like when lots of people suffer grief and loss they throw themselves into things to distract uh, as much as anything and there are two times when that's really happened in my life and the first time was when I became a mum myself it really threw me into feeling like I mattered in the world and therefore sort of taking up space in the world and when my mum died I totally threw myself into work and activism um, in fact, while she was dying, even it was before, so she was ill for three years um, before she died. And even all through that time was when I became very, very active in my local community, organising things. And it is, 
part of it's a distraction, part of it's coping, and part of it is that, you know, you, you want to make her proud. Are there ever any things that you wish you could have said or, or done with her? It's actually not the big things. It's the little things. Like, I just want to ring her when I feel ill mm. and be like, oh, I feel ill, because she was suitably sympathetic. My dad is not as sympathetic. Um, but, <laughs> she, you know, I don't know, she was, like, always on my team. I'm my, my dad and my brothers and my husband. You know, that, that's the case with them, but... It's not the big things. People often, who were her friends and my aunties and uncles, they will often be like, you know, she'd be so proud of you. And and that goes without saying. I actually don't really care that she didn't get to see me um, be, get elected and do some of the things that I've done because it's just the small things, like when I'm worried about one of the kids or something. I just, that's the thing I miss. That's yes. the thing I wish I could say to her. I'd give my right arm just to have 20 minutes on the phone with her and just say, you know, what she thinks about things. The thing is, I know what she thinks mm. about most things. It's not... Um, I was so close to her that I know what she thought about things and what she would say. She wasn't... Um, she didn't assert herself in the way that I do. Like, she didn't necessarily have like really strong opinions that she asserted on people she was a gentle woman my mum uh, even though you know she did amazing things and achieved so much so she just really was a good listener and I missed that yes I think as you say I love like that you just carry it with you anyway yeah 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 she's always with me um and I, I just know so I actually don't have that many uh, regrets and wish she could have seen it or um, because apart from my, my nephews mm. my my the kids the kids are I think that it's sad that they and it's sad for my brothers more than it's sad for the kids they don't know any different but it's sad for my brothers that they didn't get to like introduce their mum to to their kids that's that I find difficult so you became a mum yourself at 22 and then you entered entered Parliament when your kids were at primary school. How did you juggle everything when they were young? Um, poorly, uh, I think is the answer. Um, the, I mean, I, I don't do it on my own by any stretch of the imagination. How single parents cope, I have literally no idea. Um, my husband has always been really uh, the primary carer of um, my children, um, even before I was elected to Parliament, because he was a night shift worker. So um, he um, was often with them in the day and he worked a four on, four off shift pattern. So he, he had long periods of the week where he was with the kids. Um, and so that obviously uh, makes a big difference. But I live in a community. I live like three streets away from the street I was born and my husband lives three streets from the street he was born on. Um, and all of my friends pretty much live within a stone's throw of where I live. And so I didn't raise my children alone. There's a, a woman called Jessie who's one of my best friends, uh, lived in the house opposite me when I had my babies. In fact, my first book, Every Woman, was dedicated to her daughter who died. Um, uh, she had a stillborn baby, um, baby Iris. 
Um, and she lived over the road from me and we raised our children together. She is a, a mom to my children as as much as I am and, and me to hers. Um, so that is how I coped. I coped by having a community and living in a community. But my, my mother-in-law um, lived uh, literally at the end of our road when my babies were little and when I was elected to Parliament. It's like bread, isn't it? It's like the TV programme Bread where we all live on the same street. <laughs> it is a bit like that. Um, and, you know, she... When Danny was little, when I was elected, she... Um, she retired uh, and took redundancy and she basically she picked my kids up from school um she she brought Danny up essentially and very very sadly she died last week uh, oh, very gosh. very suddenly I'm sorry she died to last hear that. Friday um and in fact my book mother is dedicated to her because mm-hmm. I when my mum died she became my mum um you know my mum died 11 years ago and I've been with Tom 18 years. So for most of the time of being a mom, I didn't have a mom. And Diana was my mom. And so I dedicated the book to her because I think that mothers in law and stepmoms get a dreadful write up mm, <laughs> in literature. Yes. They're like, you know, they're always like, stepmoms are always locking you in a cellar or trying to poison you. <laughs> uh, and um, and mother in laws are just nags. Uh, and that is not my experience of either stepmoms or mother-in-laws or spare mums. Uh, and so I actually dedicated my book to her because she was my mum too. And I wouldn't have been able to raise my children without her help. So, yeah, w- you know, the women in my life and the men, my immediate men, my husband, helped me cope. That's wonderful. And what do you think needs to be done to help? moms that haven't got that community around them well so much needs to be done we uh, have social policy in this country based on the 1950s idea that women give up their jobs and I don't care if women give up their jobs I don't mind if women want to give up their jobs uh, you know I don't think lots of my friends almost all of my friends have children and there is a total mixture um, of the two approaches some of them stopped working and looked after their kids some of them went back to work like me when you know their kids were very very little my son Danny was like seven weeks old when I went back to work I used to express milk in on the train into the sink um (laughs) a horrible painful moments and always have to wear a black jacket because otherwise I just have milk pouring down me in meetings but um, it's always dreadful if there's a baby on the train. I'd be like, oh, gosh, the baby crying would make uh, me just pour milk out of me. <laughs> um, so I think that what I want is choice. I want there to be a function of the welfare state that provides choice for women and families. We should stop considering um, the idea of childcare being part of a woman's salary lots of women go well it's not worth me going back to work because all of my money would go on childcare it's like no you have a joint income in your household um and your childcare comes just as much from your husband's income as it might do from yours or your partner's income um we should make childcare much uh 
more widely available and affordable. It's basically unaffordable in this country. My brother uh, lives in France. My eldest brother lives in France and he had twins. You win some sort of welfare jackpot if you have twins in France. Um, he has twin sons. And I remember him telling me one on one occasion, like the amount that they paid for childcare in a week for twins, full-time uh, childcare. And it was something like £30. And I was like, you mean £30 a day, which even by British standards would be incredibly cheap. Yes. Uh, £30 a day for two children. And I was like, and she, he was like, no, thirty pounds a week, and it pays for their lunches. That's so incredible. So they have, they have, and France has the highest productivity in Europe. So um, it's no accident that is the case. Uh, so we need, we need a complete and utter rethink on childcare um, in our country, but also uh, fathers' rights. Um, which I think a lot of people uh, think that I am opposed to, which I am absolutely not. I think that men should be entitled to the same materni- paternity as women are entitled to maternity. If I, so if I took take a year off, uh, that covers the first year of childcare. I think that my husband should then have been able to take a year off uh, on the same um, pay and benefits. Um, and then we would have been covered for two years of childcare. And also, it would make my husband as much of a risk to employers and would end the gender pay gap. Um, yes. So, yeah, I, there, there's use-it-or-lose-it schemes that they have in, in um, Scandinavian countries uh, where men uh, lose sort of tax benefits and benefits, uh, welfare benefits, where they don't take time off to be with their children. But, yeah, we still we live like it's the 1950s in this country. That's so true. In what way... Do you think the pandemic has reshaped motherhood and perhaps I mean, our value it, of it? I'll tell you what, it made me value. It made me value the ability to teach. Yes. Uh, not a skill that I possess. After one day of trying to teach my children, we just watched Countdown and uh, that was the end of my... <laughs> oh, hey there. <laughs> there ends my ability to homeschool my children. Um, one of whom did his GCSEs during the pandemic, uh, which was absolutely dreadful. Um, but yeah, look, I think that what happened during the pandemic, if you look at all of the data, is that women did the vast majority of caring and were expected to carry on doing exactly the same amount of work. Um, I think that there was a some brilliant data about academics, male and female academics, and male academics... Um, registered way more papers during the pandemic because it was like the lockdown was an opportunity to do research and uh, put in more and women did less because they were looking after their children and there therein lies uh, the massive problem yeah the way that um, it played out in most women's lives was that they ended up doing the vast majority of uh, childcare during the pandemic uh, and caring and also looking after their neighbours and uh, and women's wages uh, will have been... Women are economically more damaged by the pandemic than men, yet they were the ones doing all of the relief. The vast majority of people who were key workers during the pandemic were women. But there have been some good things that have come out of it. One of the things being that you recently voted on at-home abortion care. Could you tell me about your experiences of that and why you felt that was so important? Yeah, I mean, I um, have all my life, as my mother was before me, 
um, being a campaigner to liberalise and make uh, available uh, access to uh, reproductive rights for women, whether that's contraception, whether that's sexual health uh, provision and uh, abortion care. Um, so all of my life I was raised by a woman who, you know, in the 1960s and 70s dedicated much of her time and activism to uh, ensuring that women had a choice over their bodies. She was part of the women's liberation movement. So I, I was raised um, always to believe in a woman's right to choose. Um but uh yes, yeah, so during the pandemic there was uh basically in order because people couldn't go to the doctor so easily for all the obvious reasons, um, they put in place a temporary uh measure where telemedical uh pharmaceutical for chemical um uh termination rather than surgical termination, which is I think you know the sort of classic um sort of old-fashioned way actually now if you have a, a an abortion which the vast majority of people do before 12 weeks you can have uh, you can just take medicine and previously they were forcing women to go in and uh take the medicine in front of a doctor as if women are children and can't be trusted just to take it at home but what that would lead to unfortunately was women accounts of women for example having miscarriages on the bus on the way home from the um on the way home from uh taking Gosh, the medication yeah absolutely dreadful um but also abortion care in our country it still relies on two doctors signing off a woman's abortion which i have no idea why one doctor can't do it there's no other instance where that is the case apart from with uh people with like severe mental health problems so you know it we, we treat women like they are hysterical and mad when it's just a basic healthcare issue but um yeah so it was allowed for women to just ring and speak to a clinician either via zoom or via uh, the phone uh, and we prescribed the medication and 150,000 women during the pandemic took advantage of that um, and accessed at-home abortion. It's brought down the uh, average uh, gestation period where an abortion occurs um, to less than six weeks. So much less complication, much safer for the women involved to less than six weeks, also much less traumatic. So basically, this is women finding out, you don't find out you're pregnant until you're at least four weeks pregnant, um, because actually for the first two weeks, you're not even pregnant. So stupid, isn't it? You're not actually pregnant for the first two weeks of the weeks of gestation, because um, it goes from the last day of your last pe your last period, the first day of your last period, in fact. Um, and... Um, so this is women finding out and within a, basically a week being able to deal with it. Now, uh, the reason that mattered to me and what I said in the House of Commons uh, on the subject is that I myself uh, had an abortion. I had an abortion when, and this is not uncommon, I am one of uh, one in three women uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, so a third of, uh, of women are just exactly like me. Um, I had an abortion when my son, I, I got pregnant when my son was very little. Uh, he he was just months old and I, I found myself pregnant again. Um, honestly, I still, <laughs> I will still balk at how the hell that happened. But anyway, it did. Um, and um, I genuinely can't remember ever having sex, but there we go, must have done. Uh, unless I'm <laughs> the Virgin Mary. 
Um, but uh, it just doesn't seem likely, does it? You know, just had a baby. But anyway, um, I uh, was pregnant and I didn't want to. And I, I knew the second that I saw, and I've known every single time I've taken a pregnancy test in my life, uh, and seen the result, I uh, was positive. I've known exactly in that moment what I was going to do uh, about that. Um, and so I know my mind. I know how I feel. I know how my body feels. I know what I'm thinking. I am perfectly capable of making that decision. But because this was now my my eldest son is 17. So this was at least uh, 16 years ago. Actually, um Telemedical abortion wasn't available, but also taking the pills wasn't available. Uh, so I had to wait for a surgical um, appointment. And I, I didn't have that appointment until I was nearly 12 weeks pregnant. Gosh, that's um, such a long and way. So I, yeah, so I, I waited eight weeks. Um, you know, I had a, a newborn baby. I was back at work. Um, and... You know, I was ill because I was pregnant and tired, the tiredness. If you've never been pregnant, you will never know the tiredness of early pregnancy. I knew I was pregnant with my second baby because I woke up on the toilet at work. I was like, oh, my God, I've just fallen asleep at work. Like, that is how tired it makes you. Yeah. Saps you of all your energy. I'm still breastfeeding. Um, like, it. I was so, I was really, really ill. And I couldn't tell anyone. I didn't even tell my best friends. Um, who many of whom had had abortions, and but I, you know, I I didn't tell anyone apart from my husband and my mum, uh, and my dad. Um, I didn't tell my mother-in-law, like, and so I was living for eight weeks in this sort of horrible half-life, and feeling shame put on me by society, and I didn't tell anybody about it for like years. And it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thing uh, for me to say now. And I'm an older woman and I'm much more certain of my voice. But that was how I felt. I was already a young mom, and people were already judging me for that. Um, and so, you know, it would have been so much better for me and for my family, for my son, for my husband, um, but mainly for me. And that's okay for me to want things to be okay for me as well. Absolutely. Um, if I'd just been able to make a phone call take some pills, take a couple of days off work and just deal with it. Yes. Yeah. At home where I felt, but you know, as it was, I had to go into a hospital. I had to uh, go into a hospital. My husband wasn't allowed to come in with me to the room. I had to, I had to undertake a general anaesthetic, which is dangerous um, and, and not good for anybody. I, I, I was, it was painful. Uh, I was in pain afterwards for some time. Like, all of that could have been got rid of. Yes. You know, why wouldn't you want that for women? But we progressed that. The government didn't want us to, but we progressed it because more uh, people in the House of Commons have good sense than those that don't um, and see this as a women's healthcare issue. And I pay massive, massive tribute to Par Baroness Sugg, who was the, 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 the lord who laid the amendment in, in Parliament, and to Diana Johnson, who is just a just a brilliant campaigner for this stuff in in the UK? Well, thank goodness for campaigners like yes. her and like you as well, and yeah. sharing your story and makes my such mom. a difference. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know you work tirelessly to help women 
that are going through domestic violence, what impact do you think that has on on the children and, and what more needs to be done to support both women and children in their situations? I mean, so, I mean, if we just start with the children, some support for children who are victims of domestic abuse would be a start. There currently is, you know, if 1.6 million women suffered domestic abuse last year in um, in the UK, double that for the amount of children. So, the you know, the vast majority of, uh, of those women will be mothers um, and the vast majority of them will have more than one child. So you're talking about millions of children living with both the sort of the tyranny of maybe the lower level uh, risk and the absolute horror of the highest level of risk where that ends in murder, where children are left without parents. Um, and there is basically nothing for them. There's very little support across the country for children. If you speak to... The thing that women, more than anything else, more than need for housing, welfare, health, certainly much more than they want justice from the police or expect it, the thing that women ask for more than anything else in my years and thousands and thousands of women I've come across in the last two decades of working in this field, the thing they want is some support for their children and it's just not available. You know, you might get put on a list for... CAMs, like children and adolescent mental health support, two years you'll be waiting on a list. And unless you're at imminent risk of suicide, you are are in trouble. Um, the, The harrowing statistics about the likelihood of you ending up becoming a victim of uh, violence and abuse in later life uh, is more likely if you grow up um, in a household where domestic abuse is a feature. Mm-hmm. You are made vulnerable by it uh, and people prey on that vulnerability. It's really dreadful. It's really, really, really dreadful, uh, the impact on children. And there's like eight places in the country where there might be some of those children might get some access to support. So that absolutely needs to change. Um, but the 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 best thing for children, the thing that will make children happiest, healthiest, best is happy, healthy mums. And we forget that sometimes. We forget that the best way to support a child is to support their mother to be free and um, thriving, not just surviving. We do far too much in this country just to make sure that they don't get killed and we don't do a very good job of that. Um, But like that, as if that's enough, what you need is really genuine wraparound support for mums from places like children's centres, which obviously used to exist far more than they do now. Um, that helps women thrive uh, and reconnect with their children. In lots of cases of domestic abuse, there is a fracture um, in a woman's ability to discipline her children, for example, um, because she has had so much of that agency taken away by the abuser. Uh, and that needs to be rebuilt and re- reborn. Um, but most women who have children who have escaped domestic abuse will put it down to the strength that their children gave them, like the desire to protect, like the maternal instinct is uh, one of the best saving graces in um, in domestic abuse uh, services. But we should never criticise a woman who can't escape 
uh, when she has children and, and too often we do social services will say children's services will say well you're failing to protect when she's the victim and that's really dangerous so we need a massive shift and change yes and as you say it's a natural mother's instinct to want to protect your children yeah but if you don't have the um it's it, it, i mean obviously that is the case and that's the case for every victim of domestic abuse as well um but if you you know wanting to protect and being able to like if yes. you don't you know if you don't have the finances to leave you've been so diminished to the point that you don't believe you can leave you've been threatened with deportation you're being threatened with having your children removed if you come forward like there's all sorts of barriers that mean that women are left unable to do what they would want to do to protect their children and then we criticize them for it yes dreadful now i was thinking about protecting your children i know that you've had um, threats on social media mm. and you've had to increase your home security after sadly your friend and fellow MP Joe Cox was killed in 2016. How do you and your family cope with that worry and stress? Um, well, I mean, my family, uh, whether they don't let me know about it, my husband is very pragmatic. He, The thing he doesn't like about it is the effect it causes on me. He doesn't ever like consider that there's a sort of imminent risk to him or the kids he's very he can be very rational about it in a way that I can't because I feel like it's my fault that my children are threatened um because I'm a woman and that's the way I've been groomed even though it's not my fault um if I just you know had been a humble watchmaker, was it, that um, Einstein said, rather than making, you know, splitting the atom and making nuclear bombs. Um, my children wouldn't be under as much threat, but that's not my fault. <laughs> no. But it's very hard to rationalise that for me, to think that it's not me putting them in harm's way. I still will feel like it is, and that's hard. Uh, and that's quite hard to live with. And my husband doesn't like that effect on me. He thinks that that, I mean, he's right. He thinks it's cruel and punishing on me. My children have learnt to adapt um, in that, for example, they don't have social media and never have, uh, really, because they're, you know, they they saw dreadful things being said about me. And so we had a sort of moratorium on that, like, and I'm, to be honest, I'm really grateful for that. <laughs> That's mm. one thing where the downside led to an upside. So my children don't have a lot of, uh, don't like, you know, they don't do like Instagramming, Facebooking, TikToking and all that sort of thing because they have to be much more careful in those uh, environments. Um, but they have just learned to cope with it. They, they've learned to understand what is real and when it's dangerous. They can risk assess things quite easily. But sometimes my... My younger son, certainly. My older son doesn't like to tell people that I'm his mom, And that's, you know, because he wants just to live a normal life and not be asked questions about it. And that is painful sometimes. Like, he wouldn't, he didn't, when he started a new college, he didn't want me to go in to his parents' evenings and things. Um, and it's not because I'm stricter than his dad, because I'm a total soft touch. Um, all that guilt of being away from them makes me a soft touch. But um, it's that, you know, he doesn't he doesn't want people to talk to him about it, like talk about the death threats with him or things. So that's quite hard. But my younger son, he he can be quite like children who grow up in violent homes. 
he can be hyper vigilant um, in crowded situations and things. And mostly they think I'm dull and embarrassing, like all teenage boys feel about their mums. <laughs> How do you think what happened um, those years ago with Joe? How has it changed your outlook on life? Um, it made me more determined to keep going. Uh, aside from the obvious comparison of being elected on the same day as Joe and having children and, and the effects that her death had on my career and my life as a member of parliament, you know, just first and foremost, she was my friend and mm. her children are friends with my children and her husband and parents and sister were, were my friends. And so it's very, very hard to be rational, actually, about the effect that it has on me without that being the primary thing that I end up just... I just miss her. Yeah. Um, I just wish she was there. Um, like when you lose anyone, it's like any sort of grief. Um, and, you know, she she was just such an ally. Like, you know, you just wish she was there. Um, her, it's funny that, you know, obviously my mum played such an important role in my life. There are moments in Parliament and the Ukraine situation where I just wish she was there. She would, her voice is missing. She knew so much about refugees, about war zones, about, she understood so much that I really feel there is a gap where Joe should be um and I, I i i regret that very deeply um but you know it made me much more determined to fight against hatred and vitriol and rather than making me scared to keep going it made me more determined to keep going good thank goodness it did so we have a series of questions that we ask all of our guests so I'd like to ask you, there's just, just three. So what would be two things you would tell your 18-year-old self if you had the chance? Oh, God, get some more sleep. Um, <laughs> you're about to have a baby and uh, you're not going to sleep again for a long, long time. Um, my 18-year-old self, you're nowhere near as good as you think you are. Take yourself down a peg or two. <laughs> I think most of us would say that. <laughs> Jesus, I thought I knew everything. I knew absolutely <laughs> bugger all. And what are three things that you love to do every day? What gives you a great routine, start and end to the day? I'm going to say every day that I'm in Birmingham because my life is quite different in London and it's it just isn't the same. I am there to work, really, and I don't really have a life there. Um, but my the thing I like to do every day when I am in Birmingham is I go to uh, a coffee shop um, pretty much most mornings and I see it comes from when we used to do the school run I see Jess who I was just uh, talking about and um, lots of my other friends there's sort of like six seven eight of us every day and we sit and we drink coffee and we make each other laugh and they're not interested in my life in politics like you know they were pleased this morning that we passed the abortion thing and they were like well done but like that's it like they're not they're talking about stupid stuff and what films to watch and, and normal. Like this morning we were looking at knitting patterns from a charity shop book, um, a Vogue knitting pattern book. Um, 
I love that. That's so nice that you meet up most days. Every So uh, every Wednesday, Thursday, well, obviously I'm in London, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but every Thursday, Friday um, and Saturday and sometimes on Sunday, but every day. Um, it's a bit like Cheers. Uh, my son, <laughs> my eldest son came along with me recently. Um, he was like, he's at college, so he, he was off in the morning and he was like, I'll come and have a cup of coffee with you. And uh, he was like, Jesus, it's like you live in a sitcom. When everyone was coming in, we're like, oh, hey, hey. It's just like, I feel like we're in friends. Um, yeah, that, that's, he said, my children are constantly there just to bring me down a peg or two. Uh, so I, I like to do that. Um, I like to uh, sit down. I, I was raised in a big family where didn't matter how many people there were, we always had dinner together and sat down around a table and ate our dinner together and talked the day over um, and made the dinner stretch when other people were there. Um, that's what my mum always used to say, don't worry, we can make it stretch. Um, <laughs> and so I like to every day sit down and eat dinner with my um, my husband and my children. Um, and we do it less and less because they're off doing their own things. I mean, teenage boys seem to exclusively eat their meals in chicken shops. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, honestly... Chickens, the amount of chickens that my children should be apologising to. <laughs> all they do is eat. My eldest son, all he does is goes. It's like he's doing a tour of the chicken shops of Birmingham. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, I like it when we. And yesterday, my my uh, younger son, he cooked the dinner. Uh, he made amazing. He made fried chicken because um, <laughs> that's all they eat, fried chicken and mac and cheese with chorizo in. It was absolutely delicious. And I just like to sit down and eat dinner with my family and and, and talk it over with them, sit around a table. Um, and, and the other thing that I do to relax and take my mind off things is I pay a lot of online Scrabble. Do you? Yes. <laughs> that's I brilliant. know all the two-letter words with an X in. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't use those words in a sentence. And my mum was really brilliant at like word puzzles and things. So I do a lot of that, like to keep my mind. I'm a Wordle fanatic. I was going to say, are you are I, you into it, Wordle? Yeah, I do it at one minute past 12. I stay up till midnight to get the new Wordle the and next I do one it at in. one minute past 12. <laughs> That's and now dedication. I'm, I'm at the level where I would never get it. I never get it in more than uh, four. Like I'm always four or under. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I've let myself down if I have to go to four goes. <laughs> and then, so our last question, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give to a busy mom who's trying to juggle everything? Uh, the, the piece of advice uh, I would give is just like, think that being enough is enough. Mm. You don't have to be brilliant at, um, like the word enough, it literally means everybody's got enough. And being good enough, that's all that matters. Like, d you don't have to make amazing hummingbird costumes at 10 to 9 on World Book Day. <laughs> like, you don't have to worry about what everybody else is thinking. Just, you're probably doing a great job at work and you're probably doing a great job with your kids. And as somebody whose mum died... Like, I beatify my mother. Like, I don't think she did anything. I don't remember all those times she, like, smacked my legs and 
shouted at me and was short term. I mean, they were rare, to be fair. Um, I just remember how brilliant she was. So I do a podcast about, like... <laughs> Like, who are the people that mean the world to you? And pretty much everybody picks their mum. <laughs> I love so your you, podcast. You, it's wonderful. Yeah. You've, you've basically got a future where you're going to be like the Mother Teresa to these people. Like, you know, it doesn't feel like that <laughs> at this moment. But one day your children will think you're the bee's knees and there's nothing you can do to stop that. <laughs> so you're probably doing a good enough job. Absolutely. Oh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jess. No worries, my pleasure. You can read our interview with Jess Phillips on our Brummy Mummies Facebook page and on the Birmingham Live website. Find out more about Jess's book, Mother, at poundproject.co.uk. This is a laudable production brought to you by Brummy Mummies and Birmingham Live. You can download or stream the podcast on all major platforms, including Spotify and Apple. Be sure to follow our Brummy Mummies Facebook page for lots more family information. And whilst there, sign up for our free newsletter to make sure you never miss an episode. See you next time. Today's episode of Brummy Mummies has been powered by Talk Talk's Future Fibre, which is up to 23 times faster than standard broadband, proving that some things are better faster. Future Fibre is now available in Birmingham. To find out more, search Talk Talk Future Fibre subject to local availability.